It was unequivocally a, a crisis of faith. All of the religion that I'd grown up with failed me completely. I didn't go to church for months. The only moment of comfort that came at all in the early days of my illness was I uh, just lying with my eyes closed one day and from somewhere, a voice quietly in the back of my mind, that line from the Psalms, be still and know that I am God. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Esther Hyam. The Profile is the show where we sit down with a well-known Christian to hear more about their life, faith and ministry. It's brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. The monthly title features more interviews just like this one, plus the latest news, reviews, columns and more. To request a free sample of the latest issue, do visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Today on the show, I'm speaking to John Sutherland. He's a dad, a husband, a writer and a mental health campaigner. For 25 years, he was an officer in the Metropolitan Police, rising to the rank of Chief Superintendent. John joined the police in 1992. He won the Baton of Honour for the Most Outstanding Recruit and a place on an accelerated promotion programme propelled him quickly through the ranks, becoming a sergeant after just three and a half years and a borough commander by the age of 40. He worked alongside the then Commissioner Sir John Stevens on the launch of a major new neighbourhood policing programme and spearheaded a new approach to knife crime following the stabbing of the teenager Ben Kinsella in 2008. Alongside all of this, he was a trained hostage negotiator, working on some of the highest profile sieges in London. In 2013, John suffered a sudden and major nervous breakdown, signalled by what he described as a physical snap, following something like watching a bottle of ink in a glass pitcher of clear water, watching as the blackness starts to billow and unfurl. Seven months of intense depression followed, and after returning to work on lighter duties, John retired in 2018. He's now a writer and speaker on policing and mental health issues. His best-selling memoir, Blue, describes his life in the Met and details his experience of depression. His second book, Crossing the Line, contains his lessons from a life on duty. His third book and first novel, The Siege, is a thriller based on his own experience as a hostage negotiator. Throughout his career, John's been guided by and aimed to express his Christian faith in the way he works with suspects, victims, peers and the public. So I started our conversation by asking John how he came to faith. It began in the cradle, I guess. My, my dad was a vicar in the Church of England for the first seven years of my life. And, and church and faith have been a constant in my life ever since. I'm 52 now uh, and I've uh, I've not known a period of my life without um, an element of faith in it. But but faith, as I'm sure all of your listeners will understand and recognise, is, is a journey um, with plenty of uphill stretches um, uh, and plenty of storms and every other kind of weather along the way. Um, but my faith is fundamental to, to who I am. It, it underpins everything about me did you have a moment where you feel you you came to faith or is it one of those things that sort of just like 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 the sun rising on a cloudy day it's it's light but you can't remember when it got light 
Yeah, I think more the latter. I, you know, I've I've heard people with sort of remarkable kind of conversion stories. Um, I, I don't have one of those. I just slipped in through the back door. <laughs> That's another way of putting it. Um, and of course, you know, uh, you you went into the police force re relatively young. I was twenty two when I joined. Yeah. And was that was that a, was that a calling, or you just like the uniform, or what led you into the police? <laughs> I definitely didn't like the uniform. It, it's uh, it itched like hell. The uniform I I was given when I first joined. It was horribly uncomfortable to wear and uh, and not very good in cold weather i remember being freezing because it just it was it just wasn't made for, for, for any useful purpose and um, i t well i remember the moment it first occurred to me i i was i was either 16 or 17 i was standing on hammersmith broadway uh waiting for the bus to school uh, and i remember a police officer walking past me on the other side of the road and he wasn't doing anything at all. He wasn't paying any attention to me. He was literally just walking along the pavement. And it would have been, I don't know, about quarter to eight in the morning, knowing what I know now, he would just have been bored and cold and tired and hungry. I suspect he was on his way back into the station for breakfast. So there was nothing remotely dramatic about it. Um, and while I wouldn't want to give the, the, the scene the full Damascus Road um, treatment. I, definitely, as I saw him walking past me, something went click inside. And I just thought to myself, that's what I want to do. And really, from that moment onwards, apart from an occasional unfulfilled hankering to be a rock star, um, that's the, it's the only thing I ever seriously considered doing. It's the only job I ever applied for, only application form I ever filled out. And I think, you know, looking back now, if you, if you ask most police officers now why they joined, they, they would say really simply that, that it just, they just wanted to help people. Um, and the fact that that's a fairly well-worn phrase doesn't make it any less true. And as I look back on my career from the other end, absolutely, that was at the heart of why I did what I did. But, but back as a 16, 17-year-old, I, I, I'm not sure my my sense of social responsibility was quite so well developed. I, mostly, I think I was, I was looking for adventure. And, and absolutely, I wanted to be a part of something that mattered. And policing for all of its faults and failings, and it has many, is something that really matters. And it turned out that you were quite good at it. You rose pretty quickly through the ranks, didn't you, to become, you know, uh, you know, inspector, chief inspector, superintendent, chief superintendent, borough commander at, at a pretty young age. Uh, what was it? What was it that seemed to suit your, your gifts and skills so well? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, you're very kind. It's for other people to say whether I was any good at it. I certainly loved it. Um, I loved almost every single passing second of it. Um, you know, I often talk about the painful privilege of policing, which is is to be there in in life's hurting places, at the scene of the crime or the car crash or the cop death or whatever that day's catastrophe happens to be. It's a painful privilege. It's both of those things. It's deeply painful because it's so traumatic. It's so distressing. But it, it's a privilege because you can at least be that shoulder for someone to lean on. You can at least be that ear to listen or that voice to reassure. Uh, and so I, I, I mean, I truly loved the opportunity just to try and do some good 
in a world, in a situation, in a place where things have gone desperately wrong. I actually think I was probably better up the ranks than I was on the front line. I, I, wasn't, a, I wasn't a natural thief taker, to, to borrow a phrase that will be familiar to police officers. I mean, I worked really hard, but I, you know, I worked with people who just had an instinct, a sixth sense for the person in the crowd who was up to no good. And, you know, occasionally I got lucky, but, but more often than not, I, I was kind of working away in the background whilst they went and, and, and found the bad guys. Um, but what I found that where I really came into my own was uh, in trying to enable other people to do that job to the best of their abilities. So whether as a sergeant or as a borough commander, my job was to help them to do their jobs to the very best of their ability. This idea, which I believe in very passionately, that that leadership is service. Um, and I loved helping them to succeed because when they succeeded, we made places safer. Um, and what's not to like about that? Is the police a, a difficult place to be a Christian? I know lots of people who would say so. Um, all I can say is that that wasn't my experience. I mean, every now and then I got the odd bit of, let's call it feedback. Um, uh, and definitely on, on occasions um, I got the mickey taken out of me. Uh, when I uh, uh, lost, uh, lost when, when I left one of my earlier jobs to move on on promotion, my colleagues um, organised a leaving drink for me. Uh, and when the invitations went out, they were to my last supper um, before I moved on to my new job. So, it, you know, there was, there was lots of that. But, but actually, I have to say, you know, I, I, it, it was so often in my work as, as a police officer that my faith found its most natural expression. Um, you know, I'm, uh, and it's really important to say this and for your listeners to hear this, I'm not a blind apologist for the job that I used to do. Policing, particularly of late, uh, has got some things terribly, terribly wrong. Uh, and we shouldn't shy away from that fact at all. But at its best, at its purest, when you strip away all of the noise and the nonsense, the job of a police officer is to save lives. It's to find the lost. It's to bind up the brokenhearted. It's to protect the vulnerable, to defend the weak, to confront the dangerous, to pursue justice. Well, that sounds like a pretty extraordinary job to me. So for you, in a way, it's like an expression of your faith. I get, I mean, I hope so, but, but I, I, I hope in a very natural sense. Um, I, I've... I've never been one to stand on a soapbox and shout or preach. Um, uh, I, I hope my life does the talking, at least from on my better days. From, so from that moment as a 16-year-old seeing a policeman thinking, I want to do that, to going through uh, many different roles within the police, uh, ending up in a, in a position of leadership. Looking back, would you say, would you, would you say that God called you to that role? I mean, I never heard the words. I never woke up in the middle of the night and saw the writing on the wall at the foot of my bed. But, but absolutely, um, I, I have a sense of having been where I was supposed to be, doing what I was supposed to be doing. And if I had my time over again, I'd do it all again in a heartbeat. 
roll on a, a few years um and after 25 years of hard service uh, of amazing things of really challenging and difficult things you suddenly found yourself uh in, in the middle of uh, a severe uh, mental health issue didn't you which which meant you had to take a, a long time off work and you've written about it very beautifully in in your book blue what was that like for you both as a uh, you know a high serving police officer and as a christian how did that affect your faith well, I, I described it in blue as as a crisis of everything. Um, you know, I was 43 years of age. I'd been in the police for well over 20 years. Uh, I was a chief superintendent, a borough commander, and I had a massive nervous breakdown um, that left me off work for more than seven months. Uh, and although I got back to work eventually, I never got back to full operational duties. Um, I was due to retire this coming September. That's when I would have completed my 30 years, but, but I had to leave on a medical retirement four and a half years earlier because I broke myself. Um, and, you know, um, four and a half years on from retirement, I'm still um, on an almost daily basis dealing with the consequences of that. And, and it was absolutely a crisis of everything. It was a crisis of life. It was a crisis of work. It was a crisis of identity. Um, and it was unequivocally a, a crisis of faith. All of, and, and I use and choose the word very deliberately, all of the religion that I'd grown up with failed me completely. Um, all of the rites and routines, all of the set prayers and phrases, all of the convenient answers neatly recorded in self-help books, none of them did me any good whatsoever. In fact, in some cases, the reverse. Um, uh, I, I didn't go to church for months. I didn't read my Bible for months. I could barely say a word of prayer. The only moment of comfort that came at all in the early days of my illness was I uh, just lying with my eyes closed one day and from somewhere, a voice quietly in the back of my mind, that line from the Psalms, be still and know that I am God. Um, and I hung on to that like a life raft for a long, 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 long time. And, and I, I, I have to go back and hang on to it sometimes. Uh, you know, there have definitely been moments in my life, including very recently, where, to be completely honest with you and with your listeners, I've felt abandoned by God, um, unable to hear him, see him, feel him, unable to make any kind of sense of the situation that I found myself in. And... And mental health, mental ill health is a cruel thing because it all happens on the inside. It's invisible. Nobody on the outside can see it. Um, and even when you're in the midst of it, especially when you're in the midst of it, it's impossible to make any kind of sense of it. it it's, I often say to people, depression is the, is the thief of joy and hope. It's the, it steals from you any semblance of joy in the present moment and any possibility of hope for the next moment and sometimes all you can do is just hang on by your fingernails and wait for the storm to pass um, and hopefully one day look back on it all and find a way to make sense of it all but there are definitely times when it doesn't make much sense to me what does help in those times because sometimes you know christians can even be the worst can't they for, for being very well-meaning uh, but just sometimes saying the wrong thing what what does yeah, help at those if, times 
if you're faced with someone struggling with, with mental ill health, do not question their faith. Do not tell them that they just need to believe more. Do not tell them that they just need to pray more. Um, that's just about the most unhelpful, destructive thing you could possibly do. You just need to put an arm around them and hold them close and, and wait with them for the storm to pass. Um, sometimes, as I say, it is just about hanging on. Sometimes it is just about remembering to, to be still and trust that even though you can't feel it, hear it, see it, smell it, sense it, anything, trust that still he's God. And, and my, my favorite Bible verse of the last five or six years um, comes from Psalm 40, but in the message translation, um, uh, where it says more and more people are seeing this. They enter the mystery, abandoning themselves to God. And sometimes that's all I can do. That's all I can do is just to say, you know, whether it's my own set of circumstances, whether it's the war in Ukraine, whether it's the cost of living crisis in this country, whether it's the working out of COVID, whether it's societal injustice and inequality, all of it to me is a mystery. I, I, I don't understand what God's up to. I don't understand why he stays his hand. Um, I mean, I know what the convenient Sunday school answers to those things are, but, but they don't work for me anymore. All I can do is to acknowledge the mystery, to say, actually, there are, there are more things that I'm less certain about than ever before. But somehow in the midst of all of that, abandon myself to God. And so, well, there's someone out there up there who is wiser and stronger and truer. Um, and abandon myself to grace. You've expressed that so beautifully, going beyond the certainties and allowing there to be something deeper, darker and uh, more complex. But that's, we don't all want to face that, do we? No, I, I, you know, we, we live in a society, never, never mind, you know, in the church in its broadest sense. I, I think culturally we live at a time and in an age where, where we want certainty about things. We want to be able to explain things. We want to be able to box things off. Um, and if God is real, and if he is who he says he is, we can no more put him in a box than we can fit the universe on the head of a pin. And yet, I, you know, I grew up in a culture and a tradition that was constantly trying to do exactly that, to, to tame the untamable, to define the undefinable. Um, to appear to be in control of it all. Um, and it just isn't so. I am less certain of more things than I've ever been in my life. But I do believe that God is love. And you're now in a very new season, as you say, still still recovering from and still still dealing with, um, you know, a, a huge change in your life and your energy and, and how you see things. But God's taken you into a very new place now, writing uh, your your third book just out your first fiction novel um 
Blue, your memoirs, crossing the line, uh, a bit of a manifesto on, on policing and being <laughs> a spokesperson now. And I think what's what's been incredible, I, you know, I know uh, guys who've been some, to some of the talks that you've given and, you know, the power of someone who, um, you know, has, has achieved so much. I know you're very humble about it and very modest, but you've achieved amazing things in your career. But, but standing up very honestly and saying, and it crashed and burned. I broke myself, as you just said earlier. You know, that's having an incredible effect, particularly, I think, on other guys, isn't it? That, that, that they too can can talk about what they're struggling with. Um, so do you think that's, is, is it too much to say that that's a, a new calling on your life now to speak out about some of the things that, that people don't want to speak out about? I think that's definitely been true of the last five or six years. I, I, I mean, I'm I'm not in the best of health at the moment, so I, I'm not doing I'm not speaking at the moment. I'm just trying to take good care of myself. But but absolutely, I've had extraordinary opportunities in the last five six years to speak in all sorts of unexpected places to policing audiences and to non policing audiences um, uh, up and down the country. England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, uh, and, and it has been an enormous privilege. Uh, and what you realise, of course, I've seen it from the inside, but, but it's important to, to remind people, you know, policing is hugely under fire at the moment from almost every side. Um, and much of that is its own fault. Um, uh, you know, as I've said two or three times already, you know, policing sometimes gets things terribly, terribly wrong. Um, but it's really important that we retain uh, an element of balance in the story that we're telling. Um, because for every story you could tell me of policing done wrong, and absolutely, as a journalist and, and a broadcaster, it's part of your job to do that. We should never, ever shy away from holding policing up to the light. Um, and I could tell you some pretty grim stories myself. But for every one of those, I could tell you a hundred of policing done right, of the kind of humanity and heroism that would take your breath away. Um, and I think we forget that sometimes. We've just had the fifth anniversary of the terrorist attack on London Bridge. And alongside remembering those whose lives were lost, you know, I've been remembering the jaw-dropping bravery of the police officers who responded, who fought hand-to-hand -hand with armed terrorists dressed in what they believed were suicide vests. Um, and it is an extraordinary job for the most part done by extraordinary people, but it's a job that takes its toll uh, as it did on me and as it does on so many others. And you know, one really simple statistic, and I'm not much one, I prefer stories to statistics, but this is a powerful one. If you're talking about exposure to trauma, most of us during the, course of our, our lives will be exposed to extreme trauma on three or four occasions. Police officers during the course of their working lives will be exposed to extreme trauma on four to 600 occasions, three to four times in an ordinary life, four to 600 times in a policing life. And they do that on behalf of the rest of us. They go where most wouldn't, and they do what most couldn't. And in amongst holding them to account for all that they get wrong, I think we need to remember sometimes to be grateful for all that they get right. And to support, you know, quite a question I quite often ask uh, to guests on, on the show is, you know, how can Christians help their, their local police officer? 
what what do they need to, to, to keep them sane and healthy and, and loved? Well, I've often said, in, including when I've spoken in churches in the past, in uniform, but 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 also to you know non-church audiences. Now, one of the things that you can do very simply is that the next time you see a police officer out on patrol, go up and say thank you to them for for what they do. Uh, and it's the simplest of things, but it will have the most profound effect, particularly at this moment in time, where I think if you talk to most serving officers at the moment, they just feel damned whatever they do. They just feel as though they're being vilified from every side, that there's just nothing they can do right. Um, and I think that makes it more important, not less that sometimes actually we just stop and say, right, that stuff over there is deeply, desperately wrong. And as a society, we need to do something about it. But that stuff over there, that humanity, that heroism, my word, how lucky are we to have men and women like that who are prepared to give their lives, in some cases, quite literally, to protect the rest of us. And for you personally, John, what, what's next for you? Well, just in this season of my life to go as quietly and gently as I possibly can um, to try and be the best husband I can be and the best dad that I can be and uh, to finish writing the next book. Holier than thou. Radical. Delusional. Ignorant. Perfect. It's time to challenge stereotypes about Christians, and Premier Christianity is leading the way. Transform your perceptions, broaden your horizons, open your mind to wide-ranging views. Read interviews with politicians, theologians, and TV presenters. Discover the breadth of the Christian spectrum. Be provoked, react, inspired, and informed. Get the print magazine and full online access for just £4.95 a month. Subscribe today at premierchristianity.com. Premier Christianity magazine. The bigger picture. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Hello and welcome back to The Profile on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Esther Hyam. The Profile is the show where we sit down with a well-known Christian to hear more about their life, faith and ministry. It's brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. This monthly title features more interviews just like this one, the latest news, reviews, columns and more. To request your free sample of the latest issue, do visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Today on the programme, I'm speaking with John Sutherland, former police chief superintendent, now writer and mental health campaigner. In part one, we heard about John's early experiences of faith, his calling to become a police officer when he was just a teenager and his rapid rise through the ranks of the Met. We heard his passion for the amazing work done by extraordinary men and women in the police force and the challenges of it too. He shared the staggering statistic that whereas most of us experience extreme trauma three or four times in our lives, for police officers it's three to four hundred times. We also heard the toll the job took on his own mental health, causing a major nervous breakdown which ultimately ended his active policing career. And he shared how his faith in God has been the foundation, even in the darkest times. In the second part of our conversation, John takes us into the tense world of hostage negotiation – 
His third book and first novel, The Siege, has just been published. It's based on his own experiences of talking down people in the most extreme moments of life and death. I started by asking him to describe the novel for us. It's a story about our times. Uh, it's a story about a divided society. It's a story of, about hatred and where it comes from. Um, but it's also a story about grace. Um, uh, and one of the characters is named very deliberately. Uh, and the book starts in, in the bedsit where Lee Connor resides. Um, and we discover fairly quickly that he's a, a right-wing extremist um, uh, and is particularly devoted to the leader of a far-right organisation um, who's just been sent to prison for a series of pretty horrendous crimes. Um, but this man is a hero to him. Uh, and Lee wants to do something about it. Uh, and so he takes a group of hostages uh, in a local church hall in southeast London, um, not far from where I live. Uh, they tell you to write about what you know. Uh, and he takes a group of hostages and, and demands the release from prison uh, of this man who is his hero. Uh, and so the story is told in real time um, over the course of one night. Um, over the course of 10 hours. Uh, and there's a, a much wider supporting cast, but primarily it's these three individuals, the hostage taker, the hostage and the hostage negotiator. Uh, and it's their stories and it's the story of the collision of their three lives. Let's talk about Alex first. He's the, he's the policeman, he's the negotiator, struggling with things in his own life as well, struggling with the shadow of a, of a negotiation that, that went uh, wrong. You've been in that, that place, you've been a police no negotiator, you know how difficult it is. So how much of is Alex based on you? That's a really good question. Um, uh, 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 all of him and none of him, I suppose, is, is a kind of suitably ambiguous answer. Uh, the very first draft I wrote of the book, uh, I sent to a very good friend of mine who works in the movies uh, and is a, an extraordinary storyteller. Uh, and so I sent it to him as a friend, but also as a professional. And it was an early draft. It, it wasn't the one that's now about to be published. Uh, and he came back with some early feedback and he said, I, he said, I really like your, your Grace character. I think she's brilliant. Really like your Lee character. I think he's really good. But but Alex, he said, he's, he's, he's just a bit vanilla. He's, he's a bit boring, he said. And I, I said to my friend, Eddie, I, you do know that's the one who's loosely based on me, don't you? And he said, he said, yes, Ouch. no, I do. Know. <laughs> I do know that. He said, but, but you asked me to be honest. Uh, and so we, we began with someone who was very like me um, uh, and ended up with someone who was a lot less like me. Um, but but. His, his career background, his experience as a negotiator, um, his struggles with his own mental health, um, lots of those things that are, are things that I have in common with him. Um, and so I, I guess there is still quite a bit of me in his character. What I think you captured really well, and probably because you, you've been in his shoes, was that sense of having to walk this incredibly high tightrope of, of being the one person in contact with, with a dangerous man, with dangerous weapons at his disposal, 
and you having to try and talk that person round without knowing, without having any any tools, any levers at all, um, and knowing that each word you say could either result in, you know, more violence or lack of communication. I mean, the, the tension of that just seems incredible. How how did you handle that in your own life when when you were in that very situation yourself? Well, when you're dealing with it for real, I, I mean, t- there are two or three elements that come into play. Number one is you've been incredibly well trained. Um, you know, over the course of a 25 year policing career, uh, I went on on lots of training courses for different things. But but by far the best one I ever went on was was the course to become a negotiator. A very demanding, very exacting course, but but does a lot to prepare you for for what's to come. So that's the first thing is you are well-trained and well-prepared. The second thing is that negotiation is very rarely a solo undertaking. Um, You're always, as in this story, or almost always, um, part of a team. Uh, And uh, although only one of you is talking at any one moment in time, um, all of you are listening. uh, And everybody has the opportunity in one way or another to contribute, even if it's just in encouraging the principal negotiator. Hey, this is Sam. Really hope you're enjoying this conversation right here on the Profile Podcast today. Could you do me a favour right now? It will take you just two seconds to give us a rating and a review wherever you found this podcast. Just a couple of seconds to give us a rating is so, so helpful. It helps other people to discover the show as well. So if you could do that, we would so appreciate it. And then the third thing, I think, is, you know, there's there's a... I, I use an analogy in the book, which is very much true to life, that, that, that as you get stuck into the negotiation, it's, it's a little bit like I imagine a 100-meter runner to be at the start of a race. You know, they can be in a stadium full of 80,000 people, but there comes a moment where all of their attention just narrows to the track in front of them and to the finish line ahead of them, and everything else disappears into the periphery or, or even vanishes altogether. Uh, and I think as you get into a negotiation, everything else ceases to matter. Um, uh, when I used to get called out, um, there was one particular colleague who, who would ring you up when it was time to go. And and he wouldn't say hello. He wouldn't ask you how you were. There'd be no small talk. There just would be this voice on the other end of the line that would say, are you ready to save a life? And... Uh, you know, it's a little bit of an affectation, I suppose, but it, but it had a remarkable way of focusing the mind. You know, for as long as I'm involved in this case, there is only one objective, which is to save the life of this person or these people. Um, and all of the, the privileges of policing, that's the greatest one of all, um, to be able to come home at the end of the day and say, I helped to save someone's life today. Did you ever have moments? Because I know, you know, as a believer yourself, I know that you've taken God into into the room with you wherever you've gone. Did you ever have moments where you felt, you know, God put put a hook or a word or something to say in those negotiations? Gosh, that's a good question. Nobody's ever asked me that before. Um, I, I mean, I'm not sure how good I am at hearing God in any circumstances. Um, never mind under sort of enormous pressure, uh, as is the case in, in real life um, negotiations. But absolutely, there, I mean, there have been occasions throughout my career where I've, I've had a real sense of not being on my own. Um, and I guess moments of, of potential inspiration 
that that could have come from all sorts of sources, but but may well have been divine. Um, so yeah, de- definitely a sense of not being alone, not not having all of it just hanging on your shoulders alone. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's part of being part of the the negotiating team. But I guess there are there are elements of faith in play as well. Let's talk about Grace. Extremely mm-hmm. well named, deliberately named uh, as the character. And again, what I think is so brilliant uh, about what you've done with the siege is that you know, for Christians reading it, you, you can see low. You know, you, uh, Grace uses the twenty third Psalm as a, as a way of sort of staying calm in the situation. It's in a church hall. One of the fellow hostages uh, is the local vicar, um, and there are themes of forgiveness and grace all the way through it. But if you weren't in that world, if you'd never stepped in a church before, it, it would also be very accessible to you as well. And I, and I think you've done that brilliantly. Grace is an incredible um, picture, I think, of of someone living an incarnate faith. She's right in there in the moment being Jesus, isn't she, in, in the moment. Tell me about her and and the way she came to you and, and what her, the journey that you can tell without any spoilers. Well, she, to me, uh, always has been and is the, the hero of the story. Um... So she's a she's a black woman in her early forties, I guess, um, who has a story of her own to tell, um, but but has a faith that is is deep and personal to her. Um, but but the interesting thing about writing fiction, and you know, this is my first go at it, and I'm still learning. But but the fundamental requirement, if you're going to write a thriller, is that it's got to be thrilling. Um, you, you need your readers to want to turn the page so all of the facets of the story that you've just mentioned they're only there because they serve the purpose of the story um they're not there because i'm trying to sort of clumsily express an an aspect of my personality or or my worldview um i i hope that the characters feel very real uh, and i hope that they're reactions and responses, their actions, their thoughts even, because we see quite a lot of their inner lives uh, as we go through the story. I I hope all of those are are credible and real. Um, So Grace's faith is important in the story because it's important to her and because it underpins the way that she responds to this impossible situation that she finds herself placed in. And it's also the reason that she can do what she does. There's a a moment where her attitude towards Lee changes and it almost feels like it's coming out of nowhere for her. And it's sort of in the context of that, it it feels like God's using her to be an agent of, 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 of grace in that in incredibly stressful uh, moment. And she calls, she does a beautiful quote, doesn't she, from um, Martin Luther King towards the end. I hope I'm not giving anything away here by using this, but uh, uh, what does she say? Returning hate for hate only multiplies hate. Darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Um, that's a really beautiful use of, of that quote for her, her response, isn't it? Again, I, I hope it's true to her as a character, but but it's also true to to my view of the world. I, one of the recurring themes in my nonfiction writing, um, one of the lessons that I learned over twenty five and a half years of policing, of more than fifty years of life now, is that we all have stories to tell. Um, we we all have a history, a past. We all have circumstances that have led us to the points that we now find ourselves. Um, 
Um, and I think it's so easy in life, in society at the moment in particular, to write people off, to condemn them as being defined by the crime that they committed or the mistake that they made or the bad judgment call. You know, we as a society are so quick to write people off. Uh, and what Grace does in the story uh, and what I try to do in real life is, on my better days at least, is try to understand why people are the way they are. You know, if you're responding to me with anger, then that may not just be about me. It may be that there's something else going on in your life or that there's something that went on in your past. If, if you're struggling with addiction, if you're struggling with any number of things, there's, there's always a reason. There's always a story. Uh, and that's been a recurring theme in my nonfiction writing. Uh, and I suppose that's one of the things I've tried to bring into the, the telling of a made-up story is, is the reality that, that we, all of us, even the ones of us who've done terrible things, have stories to tell. Well, that brings us nicely on to Lee as well, who's the, uh, the, the hostage taker in the story. And um, we, we learn about him as the story goes on and, and start to fit together a picture of, of why he's acting in the way he does. And I wanted to ask you, is, is that you've sort of you've half answered it already, really? In, in the, the people that you've met in your 25 years in police, plenty of those would be on the wrong side of the law. Is, is that the conclusion that you came to, that um, that what the, one of the police officers uses the phrase mad, bad or sad? Um, is that the conclusion that you came to, that there is, there's always a reason why somebody might behave in a violent or criminal way? Are, are criminals made, not born, I suppose? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I refuse to believe that any of us is born wicked. Or evil. I think all of us are born with the potential for extraordinariness. I think I might just have made up a word there, but you know what I mean. And so I have a very good friend who is a convicted criminal, has been convicted of some very serious crimes, spent 20 years in prison. Um, and we've got to know one another in the last few years. And he's just, he's an extraordinary man. Uh, and he's written a book um, about his life and his times and about his childhood and his adolescence long before he was convicted of these terrible crimes. And, and he talks about his life being saved by a, a prison psychologist who wandered the wing with her own set of keys and spent time with primarily men who'd done terrible things. Uh, and she was the one who, the title of his book is Redeemable. His name's Erwin James, and it's an extraordinary book if people want to read it. And she taught Erwin that he was redeemable. She helped him to try to understand his past in order to be able to make sense of his present. And the phrase that she said to him that has been a kind of watch phrase for me ever since, she said to him, understanding is not the same as excusing. And in all the time that I've known Erwin, he's never once tried to excuse what he did. He's never once tried to shy away from his responsibility for it, um, uh, for the sense of guilt and responsibility he, he feels towards those affected by his crimes. So he's not trying to offer any excuse, but he is trying to understand. Uh, and that's become, you know, part of my life's journey. You know, in policing, you, you see the very worst that humanity has to offer. Um, and there's a whole load 
of things that go on in this life that there is no possible excuse for. Forms of violence, forms of abuse, forms of criminality, there is no excuse for any of them. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to understand why people do the things that they do. Because if we can begin to understand, then we might actually be able to do something to prevent it happening again in the future, as well as just displaying a bit of basic compassion and humanity towards the person sitting or standing in front of us. And Erwin is one of my dearest friends. So hopefully people will pick up the siege as their holiday reading, get into it, enjoy the story, all the things that you want from it, from a good novel. What else do you hope the impact of the book might be? Well, first and foremost, I, I, I just want people to turn the pages. I, you know, I, I want them to read the story and enjoy it as a story. Um, it, it's, you know, each of the characters and the plot is entirely a product of my imagination. Um, but at the same time, the, the story itself is as true as any is uh, I've ever told. So on one level, I suppose I want people to be entertained, but, but on another level, I, I hope it makes them stop and think about one or two of the issues and challenges that we face as a society at this moment in time. John Sutherland in conversation with me, Esther Hyam, here on The Profile. His book, The Siege, is out now. And if you enjoyed that conversation, there are literally hundreds more available on our podcast, The Profile. Just search for The Profile wherever you normally get your podcasts from or visit premierchristianradio.com forward slash The Profile. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine. Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information.